today is that instead of having just one faculty member, we now have 60. And we, we are an incredibly broad department. We try to excel at everything we do. And one of the things that helps us excel at doing theoretical astrophysics is having talented young faculty like Caitlin Cratter, who's our next speaker. And she's going to be talking about exotica in the outer solar system. All right. Well, thank you very much, Buell. Uh, is my volume OK? You guys can hear me in the back. If you guys want to come sit down in the back, you're welcome to. You can even walk out in the middle. It's OK. I know there's exciting things to see in the building. There's a lot going on here today. So thank you all for, uh, for giving us your time and coming to hear us tell you about some of the things that we're excited about. Um, it's always a little bit hard to, to follow Tom, um, but I'll try to wow you not with pictures of old people, but with pictures of ancient objects in our own solar system. So I'm also going to start with a little bit of history and tell you that the basis for a lot of the things I'm going to talk about today goes way back to the 18th century to mathematicians like Laplace pictured here. So what I want to talk about is give you a brief reminder of how it is that we find and have found the planets and other objects that we know about in our own solar system. And you're going to hear later from uh, some of our other faculty members like Jared Mails about exoplanets. Um, but I'm just going to focus on our own solar system today because I think sometimes we forget the wonder that's right here at home. So I'll talk about how we have found the things that we know about in our solar system. And then I want to tell you a little story about how we can use some basic mathematics and basic physics to learn really cool things about the most distant objects right here in our own solar system. And specifically, I want to talk about Pluto and Charon and some of the other objects out way out in what's known as the Kuiper Belt. And those of you who have spent some time on campus will know the name Kuiper because that's one of our colleagues um, who founded LPL. Okay. So where are we? Let's, let's take a look at our solar system. Now, this diagram is not to scale in terms of the separations between the planets, uh, because it would be very, very boring. I'd have one thing on the slide, and you'd have to go across campus to see everything else. But at least the sizes are to scale. And our solar system uh, is, is nice and organized in a lot of ways. We've got the sun. We've got the tiny little terrestrial planets in here. There's Earth. We've got the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn. And then the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. And what we've learned in the last 20 years uh, of exoplanet discoveries is that our solar system is not the template for everything that's out there. We used to think that all systems would look exactly like this, that had the same architecture. But we've learned that that's not true, and that's been really fundamental for changing how we understand both our solar system, the formation of planets, and even the ultimate possibility of finding life, life elsewhere in the universe. So how did we discover the things that we know about today? Well, Mercury through Saturn were discovered in a pretty boring way, uh, some might say, because they were discovered by I, probably first by the ancient Babylonians. You know, you look up in the sky, and you know the stars very well, because of course there's no other light, there's none of this light pollution, and really you've got nothing else to do after dark but look at stars and come up with crazy pictures. Um, and and uh, the Babylonians and, and pretty much every ancient culture realized that there were some bright things that were moving differently from the stars. The stars did exactly the same thing every night and moved in the same way season after season. They'd rise in the east, set in the west, and then the planets were moving relative to those. And I'll show you a little illustration of that in a bit. 
Things get a little bit more exciting when we go out to the more distant objects like Uranus because we had to wait for the invention of the telescope to see something that was so faint and so distant. Neptune is one of my favorite favorites because, as Buell mentioned, I'm a theorist. And Neptune was the first planet that was predicted by what we understand about the basics of physics, gravity, and mathematics. Several mathematicians were able to look at the orbits of other things in the solar system, and they said, ah, this isn't moving quite right. It doesn't follow the laws of gravity as we understand them. Now, this wasn't the discovery of general relativity. That came later. It was the discovery that there had to be some other massive thing way out in the solar system that was changing the orbit of the known planets. Now, to be quite honest, it was their calculations that led to the discovery of Neptune. It turns out they didn't do their calculations quite right. And so their prediction of exactly where it should be uh, was a little bit off. But it motivated the observers to go out and look for something, and indeed they discovered it. Now, the minor planets, Pluto included, um, those have also been discovered in much the same way with small telescopes. And I'll mention a little bit later the history, of course, of the discovery of Pluto here in Arizona. So I showed you first a picture of what the planets in our solar system look like when I scale them to size. This is a diagram showing their relative scale um, in terms of separation. Here you can see the terrestrial planets clumped up in here, the asteroid belt. Uh, the outer ice giants, and of course, one of my favorite objects in the solar system, Pluto, which you notice I didn't include on the first slide because we no longer refer to it as one of the planets. We call it a dwarf planet. So I'll just show you a little illustration of one of the reasons why we call it a dwarf planet, and that's because we now know of a whole lot of other things in the solar system that are kind of like Pluto and kind of unlike the other planets. So. This is Earth's moon. And here are all these other things, Pluto's right here, kind of at the high end, that we now call minor planets. So I think instead of looking at this as a demotion of Pluto, you should look at this as a really exciting discovery of all these other cool things in the solar system. And these little minor planets, you might think, oh, who cares about some tiny rock floating around? These are the things that start to give us insight into the very earliest phases of our solar system. They tell us something about planet formation that we could never learn from Jupiter because they're small and they're rocky. And they tell us about the first stages where little rocks in the solar system were colliding together to grow bigger and bigger and form these objects. And at the very end of my talk, I'll talk about the Kuiper Belt, as I mentioned before, which is where we can still see these tiny little rocks before they've grown even into something that is smaller than the size of our own moon. So, Following on Tom, I just want to mention a little bit of the history of the discovery of uh, Pluto. And as many of you know, this goes back to Percival Lowell. Now, Lowell had two famous ideas. His first idea was that the Martian surface is covered with canals. As we now know, that's, that's not true. Um, it took until 1965 to actually confirm that this wasn't true when we had the first Martian orbiter. Um, but you know, it, it's good that we can have people who are famous for having terribly wrong ideas. So his second idea was that there was a, another planet out there. Um, and his inference for why there should be another planet was quite the same as the, uh, the case with Neptune. He said, ah, you know, Neptune isn't moving quite right, so there must be something else tugging on it. Now, it turns out that, yes, there was another object out there. Pluto did exist. It was eventually discovered. 
But this reasoning, kind of like the Martian canals, is actually wrong. Pluto is not nearly big enough to cause the effect that uh, Lowell thought he was seeing. So, you know, it's kind of an accidental uh, discovery in that sense. And in fact, uh, Pluto wasn't discovered until after Lowell died. He left money to the observatory to continue the search. There was some political wranglings that went on that delayed things for a while. Uh, but they eventually hired this guy, Clyde Tombow, who was basically a farm kid who liked to look at the stars and draw pictures. He had no formal degree. And it was by looking night after night at the sky up in Flagstaff that he was able to discover it. And I just want to give you a little demonstration of how this kind of discovery works. Okay, so here's how we find planets in our solar system and indeed many other small rocky objects that are floating around. So we take two pictures and now you use those two pictures to find the planet. Raise your hand when you have found the planet in these two pictures. Ah, you guys are good. Okay, for the slow folks, there you go. So here's how you find planets. Very simply, you take a picture of the sky one night. You come back another night, you take the same picture, same spot on the sky, same set of stars. Stars are very far away, so they only move due to the Earth's orbit around the sun and the Earth's rotation on its axis from day to night. But planets, because they are close to us, they are moving in the solar system on their own orbits, they move relative to background objects. So that's how we find them. And again, that's how we find all sorts of objects in the solar system today. Okay, so. This is the image where we found Pluto. How many of you think you could find it without the arrow? Oh, see, you didn't even see the arrow. Now imagine trying to do that without the arrow. OK, so the way that this is done is basically with something called a blink comparator. I'm not making that word up. Um, and I've tried to simulate it here for you. So if anyone is sensitive to flashing lights, close your eyes. So. It helps to have the arrow there, right? This is a non-trivial task. Today, when we do this, we use fancy computer algorithms to blink images for us. But Clyde Tombaugh was doing this exactly like this image, going back and forth night after night. Now, what else did you notice about this flashing image, other than the fact that I didn't align it quite right and there was an arrow? Did anybody else notice anything changing in the sky? Or were the pictures the same? Yeah, okay, we've got an advanced uh, astronomer in the audience. Yes, so I don't know what you, who, who thinks this image didn't change? Like, what are you guys looking at? Look at, look at this star. Oh, yeah, yeah, come on, it's totally different. This is why this is non-trivial, right? When you take an image night after night, there's all these other things that change in the sky because the atmosphere of Earth is changing a little bit because there's turbulence. So it's, it's very, very difficult. So back in the day, it was the you know, discovery of Pluto that was the exciting thing in the news. But, but perhaps you've heard that there's talk of maybe another Planet Nine coming into our solar system. So I just want to say a few words about where this idea comes from. So the idea with uh, Planet Nine is that it's a very, very distant object that orbits somewhere beyond the so-called Kuiper Belt. So the Kuiper Belt is a collection of small, rocky things that are anywhere from a few kilometers in size to maybe 100 kilometers in size, so sort of city-sized objects just floating around that are the remnants of the very earliest phases of the solar system, the little rocks and things that ultimately, in some parts of the solar system, turned into planets, but in some parts were just left over as debris. 
The Kuiper belt itself is actually embedded in what we know as the Oort cloud, which is where all the comets, things like Halley's Comet, we think come from. And so the idea is that Planet 9 is sitting somewhere in between these two objects. And again, it's this same story of basic physics and math that is telling us that there might be something out there. So the evidence for Planet 9 is not some image that we've taken where we see something moving night to night. We have not detected it yet, and we may never. It may not be there. But the reason people are looking again is this same thing, where they see something funny in the way that other objects are behaving that can't be explained by the simple things we know about how gravity works. And in the case of Planet Nine, the hypothesis comes from the fact that there are these extreme objects in that Kuiper belt. So these are these little tiny rocks in the outer solar system that have these funny orbits where they're very eccentric, meaning the orbit has this very elliptical shape. It's not on a circle. And they're all aligned in this very funny way where they're, they have like the closest part of their orbit in the same place, even though these objects are too far apart to be tugging on each other directly. And so the idea is there might be something else out there, this big planet, and the gravitational influence of this big planet is making those objects be in one part of the sky and not the other. And so we're looking now, based on these models, in fact, there's a lot of searches going on with some of our colleagues over at LPL, trying to understand whether or not this signature could come only from a planet or maybe something else. And just as I said, the discovery of exoplanets has revolutionized the way we thought about the planets in our own solar system. If we find an object out here, there are many theories for how planets form that will also have to be thrown out the window. So it's a really exciting time. Now, if another new big planet living somewhere it isn't supposed to be isn't exciting enough for you, how about an object from outside the solar system? So how many people heard about, uh, I'm going to totally destroy the pronunciation now, Umaumaua, the object from outside the solar system? OK, so this is really cool. So in the last few months, astronomers who are typically monitoring the sky for what we call near-Earth objects, asteroids and things that happen to be close to Earth that might you know, one day crash into us. We want to know about them before that happens. They were looking and they saw this thing, which was moving at such a high velocity and coming in from the wrong direction that we were able to infer that it had to be not something that came in from our own solar system, but something that came from outside of our own solar system. But it looks kind of like the rocks that we have here. Now, maybe 20 years ago, this would have been a shocker because we didn't know that there were lots and lots of planets outside our own solar system. But today, we know that there are probably more planets in our own Milky Way galaxy than stars, which means that pretty much every nearby star should have a planetary system, which means they should have these rocky debris that could be kicked out by some interaction with another star or by tidal disruption. And so that's what we think this thing is. Now, I should just point out, because I, I encountered this among my, uh, my own family members, is that this picture that made the headlines, this is not a photograph of what was observed. This is a simulated image. So what we observe is just an unresolved point of light. And the way that uh, artists decided to reconstruct the image like this is because they saw that as they watched this point of light in time, the brightness changed. And so what they were able to infer is that the best way to explain that brightness changing is that sometimes, like this remote, the object is pointing at you kind of head on. 
and sometimes it's pointing face on. And because the amount of light you see depends on this surface area, they inferred that it had to have this funny elongated shape. And so that's how they were able to reconstruct that image. So I want to build on that idea of how we infer how, how something looks by looking at its light curve by talking about, as I said at the beginning, one of my favorite objects in all of astronomy, which is Pluto. Now, I already told you that this whole Pluto demotion thing is silly to get upset about. But here's another reason why you shouldn't get upset about it. It's because Pluto is so much cooler than a planet. It is actually a dwarf version of what we call a circumbinary planetary system, or Tatooine. So think of Pluto Charon as basically our own Star Wars Luke Skywalker home planet system. Okay, So here's why. So maybe some of you have heard of this other thing, Charon, as a satellite or a moon of Pluto. That's a terrible way to describe it. Because the difference in mass between Pluto and Charon is about a factor of 10. So they're different, but they're not that different. Our own Earth's moon, that's 100 times less massive than Earth. And pretty much every other moon in the solar system, so Jupiter has moons, Saturn has moons, those all have masses that are like a thousandth or a ten thousandth or a millionth of the mass of the main thing. So 10 times less massive is not that much. So the orbit, it's not like one thing sitting here and the other thing going around it. They are orbiting a common center of mass like a binary star system. And to make things even cooler, there is not one, not two, not three, but four things that are like little planets that do have little tiny masses that are orbiting around the binary. And that's what's shown here in this image that was taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. So why has there been so much interest? How did we discover all of these little objects? Well, it's because there was this mission that maybe many of you have heard of called New Horizons, which NASA actually sent to go visit the Pluto-Charon system. And so the way that all these little guys were discovered was they had launched this satellite back in 2006, and they're sending it speeding through the solar system to go encounter Pluto and Charon and study them. And then they thought, you know, there's lots of little stuff out there. And gee, it would be awfully terrible if we spent all this money launching a big satellite and sending it to the outer reaches of the solar system, and then it ran into something. And so they spent a lot of space telescope time staring at this thing to make sure that they weren't going to crash the object into a bunch of little rocks. And so they discovered these four moons. And Sometimes in the era of you know, Elon Musk launching Teslas into outer space, we get a little bit blasé about the brilliance of our space program. But I just want to show you the trajectory of New Horizons through the Pluto-Charon system. OK? That's Pluto. That's the orbit of Charon. And that is the track that New Horizons took. It threaded the needle in between these objects. And the distance between these two objects is about 12,000 kilometers. So maybe that sounds large, but we're talking about something that is at the very outer edge of our solar system. It had to travel for nine years to get there. And they were able to calculate this trajectory to within seconds that long, that, that far out. And had it crashed into something, of course, the whole mission would have been destroyed. So here's one of the beautiful images uh, from the New Horizons uh, mission of Pluto and Charon. And one could give 
10 talks about all of the crazy amazing things we're discovering about the outer solar system and how planets can form uh, by studying these objects. Um, we think that Pluto has what's called a cryovolcano, which is like the coolest word ever. And it basically means a volcano shooting out icy stuff. I mean, I, oh, we had no idea this would be there. But I just want to tell you about one simple thing relying on celestial mechanics that we can learn about this kind of system. So I mentioned before that there's all these planetary discoveries that were motivated by looking for how gravity like the in gravitational interaction between two objects. So one of the things we know about orbits is that if you have a mass in the center and you have things going around it, I can't put infinitely many little things that have gravitational forces too close together because they'll, they'll kick each other, right? So if I have two planets that are really, really close together, they don't just feel the gravity from the star they're orbiting, they feel gravitational forces from each other. So they perturb each other a bit, they kick each other. And the more massive I make these little things, the farther apart I have to put them in order for the system to be what we call dynamically stable, for the orbits to stay well behaved. Right? We look at our solar system, and Earth is just going around, minding its own business. Its orbit isn't changing in time. And that's because things like Mars and Venus are far enough away that their gravitational effects, they, the Earth feels their gravity, but not too much. Not so much that the whole system flies apart. If I took Mars and Venus, and I put them like you know two or three times closer to Earth than they are today, the whole system would fly apart and become unstable. And in fact, on billions of year timescales, we think that might ultimately happen in our solar system. But we know in general that the laws of, of physics tell us that if I have a bunch of little things, as illustrated here, I can pack their orbits really close together. And if I make them too big, I can't put the orbits very, very close together. And so what this means is we can look at a system and look at the structure and say, OK, I see these objects are moving on well-behaved orbits, and they're separated by some amount of space. That means that they can't be more massive than some critical threshold, or else, boom, the whole system would fly apart. And so we can do exactly that with the Pluto and Charon system. It's just way more exciting than this cartoon here, because I've got two big things in the center and four little things going around. So, let me just show you a, a movie that was made by a graduate student here, uh, Rachel Smullen, of the orbits in the Pluto-Charon system. And what's being done here is the gravitational forces from the massive two inner bodies and these little moons are affecting all of these little black dots here. And you can see there's this white space being cleared out where particles are unstable because the gravitational kicks are too strong. And so what we can do is we can study where objects are allowed to be, where they're not allowed to be, where things can last for the lifetime of the solar system, and where they, they fly apart too quickly. And we can infer something about the masses of these little tiny objects that are very, very far away. Now, you might think, well, that seems like trivial. Like, who cares how much mass some little moon has? So here's why. So observing stars and observing rocks is very different. When we observe a star, as astronomers, we have this great thing at our disposal, which is that stars all work pretty much the same way. They are all nuclear fusion factories. Almost every star we look at in the sky is taking hydrogen in its core and squishing it together, fusing it into helium, and releasing energy. And what that means is if I look at a star in the sky, 
and I see how much light is coming from it, because I understand nuclear physics, I can do a pretty good job of telling you how much mass that star has. Because there's a direct relationship between how much mass the star has, how much fusion is going on in the core, and how much light it is sending to our telescope. But rocks are much trickier. Because rocks are not undergoing nuclear fusion, as you might know. But rocks are reflecting light. So when we see a, a rock in the solar system, a planet in our solar system, for the most part, what we're seeing is light from our sun coming onto that rocky thing and reflecting back on us. And as you know, as residents of Tucson, different objects reflect and absorb different amounts of light. Right? This is why if you had a choice in the matter, you certainly bought a white car. And if you had a choice in the matter and you did not buy a white car, I, I can't help you. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. So what that means is that when I look at a rock in the outer solar system, like I said with that, that elongated image, we don't see what that whole rock looks like. We're not, a, most of the time at least, we're not seeing the different structures. We're just detecting light. And we have to use something about what we know about where that rock is and what it's made of to go from how much light we get to how big it is. And in order to know those two things, we need to know what it's made of. Because you can imagine I could have something that is the reflectivity of asphalt, right? And something that is the reflectivity of snow. And this asphalt thing could have lots and lots of mass and be really, really big, but only shine a tiny bit of light into our eyes because it's like the asphalt absorbing all the light. Or we could have a big snowball, which doesn't weigh very much, but is really, really reflective, shining lots of light to us. And one of the things we're always trying to do as astronomers is figure out something about how we can relate what we know about physics to what we see in the sky. And so we want to know, what are these things made of? Are they made of asphalt, or are they made of snow? And so what we were able to do using those simulations of gravitational kicks and looking at how much light was coming from those objects is say that in order for those things to be sitting where they are on the orbits that we see them, and shining the amount of light that we see into our telescopes, we were able to predict five years before New Horizons got there that, Pluto, that these little moons had to be made of ice. And indeed, when New Horizons got there, they took these images, and they were, in fact, icy. And so the reason this is important is because this tells us a bit about how these objects formed. And there's still a lot of work to be done on understanding the formation of these objects. It tells us about the early history of our solar system. But we now know we have this tool at our disposal that lets us distinguish between something that has the reflectivity of fresh asphalt, which on a scale of basically 0 to 1, where 0 reflects no light and 1 reflects all the light, that these things are probably sitting in this, this uh, range of something like ocean ice in terms of reflectivity. So, I'll just finish up by saying that the New Horizons mission has done a lot of cool things, but it is not done yet. After its great success in <coughs> zooming right by the system and not crashing into anything, uh, it is on its way to another object in the Kuiper Belt. And uh, this should be, again, one of the most primordial things that we can look at in our solar system. This will tell us about how things were coming together in the very, very early stages, the first few hundred million years. And the thing that I think is really cool is that as they've gotten closer and closer to it, by doing the same thing where they're modeling what the light looks like as a function of time, at first they were like, ah, this object, it looks, it looks kind of elongated, like that cigar-shaped thing coming in from, the, from out of our solar system. 
And now they've gotten closer, and they said, oh, it looks like it might be a binary, maybe kind of like Pluto and Charon. And then just in the last couple months, they've said, no, it's not just a binary like Pluto and Charon. It might be a triple system with another little tiny moon thing going around the binary. So if you're curious to see what this object turns out to be, um, there is a great way you can celebrate. Um, New Horizons will arrive at this object on New Year's Eve of 2019. So instead of going to some drunken, debaucherous New Year's Eve party, you can sit at home and watch the telecast of the New Horizons mission detecting this. So I will see you on New Year's Eve 2019. Thank you very much. <laughs>